Okay, so I think uh, more or less everybody is here. And so what's going to happen now is that each of us is going to have a little kind of uh, concluding remarks. And Tony, uh, where is Tony? Uh, Tony is going to start. Then Stephen is going to join in. And Stephen will join from his uh, office and then we'll see if it all works out. And then uh, I will finish. So, Tony, can you start? I can, thank you. So, welcome everyone. And I'd like to start really by just exp expressing my deep appreciation for your presence and your practice over the last few days. It's been really lovely how many people have been turning up from the meditation sessions and for the teachings and the instructions. So, uh, yeah, a deep appreciation for your commitment and your effort over the last week. It's been very inspiring. Um, and I'd also like to express my gratitude and appreciation to Martin and Stephen, both for their wonderful teachings, but also on a personal note for your support. It's been much appreciated, so thank you. Um, so I'd like to really, just a very brief thing and then what I'd like to talk about. Um, brief one is if you found this practice really helpful and supportive, particularly the the fluidity of the practice and the questioning, then um, there are many talks and um, instructions from previous retreats that, retreats that Martin and Stephen have given that you can access, um, both of some retreats and of other retreats they've done. Um, and these are, yeah, very, very helpful for practice. So you can access them either through the Gaia House website which is uh, guyhouse.co.uk and go through resources. Or the other place you can access them is through Dharma Seed. And I will actually put the uh, Dharma Seed, oh, Dharma Seed, Ma Ma um, Martin's done that. So thank you, Martin. So what I'd like to say a little bit about is something that's actually very uh, close to my heart. And it's uh, a response really to something that appeared in the chat yesterday. And um, I'll just read what was in the chat. Finding an appropriate response to the crises we are facing, the climate crisis and the sixth mass extinction. This being an ethical practice based on action. And I think for me personally, it's very important not to forget about these other crises, the, the climate crisis and the ecological crisis. Um, there's a way in which we can see how globally there's been a contraction down around the coronavirus pandemic. And this is, of course, very natural and very understandable because, of course, it's an immediate threat that's causing quite a lot of harm and difficulty to us. Um, but in a way, this is very much a reflection of what goes on in our meditation practice, that when there's something difficult, we contract down around that difficulty. And one of the things we've very much talked about in this, uh, over this week is this idea of really opening out the attention to allow the whole of the moment, the whole of the world in. And there's a way in which we also need to do this with regard to the coronavirus pandemic, not to be so sucked into it, but also to open up to, of course, not just the other crises and difficulties we face, but also, of course, to the profound beauty of nature and to the amazing acts of courage and compassion that are being enacted all over the world. So really it's an invitation in this time when 
we're in crisis, but as somebody recently was talking, I heard them talking, they, they referred to the, in Chinese, in the, um, the way they write Chinese, the word crisis also is the same for um, possibility, so for potential. So there is a way, and I'm not sure how accurate that is, because I'm not a scholar of Chinese, but there is something about that that speaks to me often in our lives. It's at times of difficulty, at times of crisis, that we actually learn to relate to it in a different way. We learn to let go. We learn to actually see the world from a different perspective. So at this time when actually we have a lot more space in our lives for contemplation because we're actually much more enclosed in our own homes and much more alone with our own reflections and our own understanding, there's an opportunity to reflect a bit more on actually the world we want to see coming out of this, I think. One of the, the amazing things that we've seen in relation to the coronavirus pandemic is this sense that as a community, a global community, we are capable of responding in ways that are very dramatic to meet a crisis. So there is this opportunity now also for us to reflect on and see how we as individuals, but also as communities can respond to these other areas of difficulty. And I'd also like to include, if you like, another um, crisis or another potent possibility of change. And that's one of the things that this pandemic has really thrown up into sharp relief. Very much how it's the poor, the low paid, the marginalized, minority ethnic communities that are disproportionately impacted by what is going on in the world, both in response to actually contracting the virus but also about how it's impacting their security and their safety in terms of their living circumstances and their ability to feed their families and that. So we can use the practice we've had over the last week to really create a balanced, stable, calm awareness from which to actually turn towards, and as Stephen says, embrace this part of this part of the suffering of the world, but also to really touch into the fact that we don't know what's going to happen. There's a sense in which some of the, the, the um, writings out there are very doom-laden and very there's nothing we can do, but actually the truth of the matter is we don't know. And in that not knowing, there is that call to respond, to take the risk and act. So it's really an invitation to use the time of contemplation, both in turning to the coronavirus, but also in turning to these other crises that the, the world is facing, and to really reflect on what kind of a world do we want to see as we emerge from this. Because many of you might be aware that yesterday I saw an image from Delhi, and it was an image from three months ago as opposed to that day. And three months ago, the country, Delhi, was absolutely saturated by a blanket of smog, very toxic air. Yesterday, it was clear, pristine, beautiful air. So there is this element of, as we move back into that, that kind of push and the rush to get back to normal, do we want to go back to 
polluted cities, the air that our children and grandchildren breathe. And there's also, um, you may have noticed, and I certainly noticed where I live, how much the bird song, there's so much more of it. And of course, that's because we're not creating as much noise. But a naturalist I was reading recently pointed out that it's actually partly due to the birds themselves can hear each other a lot more. So they're actually responding to and calling out to each other a lot more. So I'd like to leave you with an image from the Tibetan uh, tradition, and that's of the uh, Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, who is the archetypal representation or image of compassion. And in particular, there's a, a representation in the Tibetan tradition of the thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara, where each hand holds a different implement to alleviate suffering. And I remember a teacher many years ago talking about how that image represented, if you like, the Sangha, the, the community of practitioners, and how each of us bring in our own individual skills, our own individual gifts, together somehow creates something more powerful and stronger than our own individual efforts. So there is this movement as communities to gather together and actually contemplate and support each other in contemplating this. So as a community, we can give the, com the container in which to turn to what is actually quite a difficult and sometimes very distressing, distressing thing to look to face. So we can support each other in facing that, but also then support each other in actually creating the world we wish to live in. And as in Stephen's words, he talks about nurturing a culture of awakening where all life can flourish. So I think I'd like to leave it at that point and thank you for your attention and for your presence throughout the week. It's been truly lovely to meet you all. So now we should have Stephen coming on. So is uh, Stephen here? <laughs> yeah, okay, good. I, I much appreciate what Tony has to say, and I think it's obviously uh, very important for us to reflect upon how what we've been doing for the last uh, three or four days uh, on this retreat, how that's going to feed into our, our life uh, outside retreat. And since many of us are in situations where we're kind of on a forced retreat anyway, then it requires, I think, for us to call to mind the nature of this uh, pandemic, this uh, confinement lockdown that we are um, uh, experiencing together and how might we find maybe some deeper resource within us that might have been nurtured by what we've been doing on this retreat uh, to be able to perhaps look at this situation in a new light, uh, in a new way. And this may lead us to reflection, it may lead us to uh, wanting to communicate, to speak or to, to write about what's going on. 
Um, who knows how we may now come to see this world that we find ourselves in. I've also noticed the bird song, by the way. It's quite striking. And also, I've heard that um, because there's less human activity, the birds are actually coming closer into the inhabited human areas. <clears throat> I went for a walk a couple of weeks ago in a part of the countryside near the house here where I walked hundreds of times. And for the first time, I saw four uh, storks, beautiful black red-headed storks. I've never seen them anywhere remotely close to this place before. Uh, and I was very moved by that. It was as though human beings with all of their activity and busyness and noise and so on actually create a kind of an exclusion zone around them where the natural world quite, quite spontaneously uh, withdraws. But as soon as the humans pipe down, then nature recurs. We saw last week, quite extraordinarily, a hoopoe, which is a quite exotic bird, land on our kitchen windowsill. Uh, that is very unusual because this is a bird that is, 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 is rarely seen in proximity to houses and it actually flew right up to ours. So that too, I find these are, as it were, symbols of of, an, of another world that could emerge were we to become less um, committed and driven by our need to consume, our need to uh, and have all of these different things we think we need, but we probably don't really. So yeah, let's hope that this opportunity of a lockdown uh, may actually bring about a change of mind and a change of heart not just in us, but perhaps more broadly through society. But in regard to all of that, I'd like just to offer a few words about what we mean by practice. And in the context of a retreat, when the word practice is used, it's, it's often understood quite, quite naturally, really, as the formal practice of doing meditation. So we might find ourselves uh, saying or thinking, oh, now it's time to go and do my practice. And we identify our practice with a particular kind of formal exercise, sitting for 30 minutes or maybe doing Dai Chi or something. We single it out as a special activity. And in doing so, that does give it the importance it perhaps deserves. It perhaps also uh, makes us... Uh, value that particular activity more than we otherwise might. But the downside of thinking of practice in that way is that it tends to privilege one area of our life as practice and the rest is not quite the same. The rest is a sort of a, a field of daily life, um, but it's not really a practice. And I would argue that in fact, the term practice itself needs to be uh, reconsidered. We need perhaps to think of our practice not just in the narrow terms of doing meditation, but also in every other area of our life as well. 
this is, I think, quite explicit uh, when we go back to some of the earliest uh, Buddhist texts that the word uh, the Buddha used that probably comes closest to our word of practice is bhavana. Bhavana is sometimes translated as meditation. That's actually quite a common translation for it now. But it literally means to bring something into being. So when we practice mindfulness, for example, what we're doing is we're actually giving rise to mindfulness. We're creating conditions where mindfulness can come into being. And that's the practice of mindfulness. It is to, uh, it is to allow it to happen, either through our conscious choice or through circ creating and arranging circumstances so that it more naturally uh, becomes part of our life anyway. But this notion of bhavana uh, is used by the Buddha to cover far more than just um, meditation. He says that the, the, the path itself is to be practiced. And by the path here, he means the eightfold path. The fourth task, as it were, is the practice of bringing into being the way in which we look at the world, the way in which we uh, imagine the way in which we speak and talk, the way in which we uh, embody through our work and other actions what we value, the way in which we apply ourselves and focus ourselves on what matters for us, and of course, the ways in which we cultivate mindfulness and concentration and so forth and so on. But all of the activities within the Eightfold Path are to be cultivated, are to be brought into being. And so in that sense, we can understand practice as really the art of living, uh, the practice of being human. As a human being, we often just sort of run on, on automatic, on habit, on conditioning, on what society expects for us. To become a practitioner, is to become a practicing human being. Our, human, our humanness, uh, what we are, is a work in progress. Uh, it's a project. It's not something that's already set in stone and defined in some way for all time. And this is me, and that's you, and that's the way it's always going to be. No, I think what these practices are all about is recognizing that our bodies and our minds, our feelings, our emotions, our relationships, our values, our efforts, all of these constitute the practices that were we to wholeheartedly engage with, with them, as for example, in the idea of these four tasks, that they would actually come to, not all, not all of a sudden necessarily, but gradually over time, come to reshape and restructure and reform uh, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we work. And all of that, I think, has to be given equal value as practice. So to turn your life into a practice, not just to bring to bear us for a few times every day or once or twice in a year, going on a retreat or doing meditation and that's your practice and the rest is a kind of an add-on. I think it's helpful to reconsider how we use 
many of these key terms. And to illustrate that, and also to conclude what I'd like to share with you, I'd like to give a story once again from the Tibetan tradition. Uh, this comes from the, uh, the Kadampa school of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and it concerns uh, a Lama who was called a Drom, Drom Dumba, La Lama Drom. And Drom was a disciple of a teacher, if any of you have heard of the teacher. And the story goes that one day Drom was sitting in his uh, room in his monastery and he was looking outside um, in the courtyard and um, he saw an old man who was circumambulating uh, the stupa. The stupa is the kind of the, the reliquary shrine uh, symbol, pagoda, whatever you call it, um, that is common in Buddhist countries. Circumambulating a stupa is a way of accumulating merit or use it to chant mantras or whatever. And so Drom uh, noticed this old man and then he went outside and he walked over to him and he said, you know, this is really wonderful that you are circumambulating this stupa, but it would be much better if you practice the Dharma. And then he went away. Next day, or five days later, who knows, he looks out of his window from the monastery and uh, he sees this same old man, but now the old man is sitting down in a covered area in one of the courtyards and he's uh, studiously examining uh, a Buddhist text. He's studying something, he's reading something, he's very immersed in this. So John goes outside and he walks over to this old fellow and he said, you know, this is really good that you are studying these Buddhist teachings and uh, thinking about them and so on, but it would be much better if you practiced the Dharma. Then he went away, went back to his room. Um, this is going to be over soon, don't worry. A few days later, he's looking out of his window and he sees the old man. And this time the old man has actually moved away from the courtyards of the monastery, sitting out in the, the surrounding area. And he's underneath a tree and he's cross-legged, sitting in meditation. And on goes out to uh, see him and uh, says, no, this is really excellent, you know, that you're practicing meditation. But it would be far better if you practice the Dharma. And at this point, the old man basically blew it and said, look, what the hell do you mean, practice the Dharma? And John's answer was very simple. He said, when you practice the Dharma, there is no difference between the Dharma and your own mind. In other words, we tend to think of these practices, whether it's circumambulating a stupa or studying a text or even sitting in meditation, as some kind of activity that we self-consciously involve ourselves in because for some reason we think it's good for us. We think it's somehow necessary or worthwhile. Um, and we do these things, but they've not really become integrated in who we are. They are kind of add-ons, uh, extras, um, that we take very seriously. We maybe take a little bit too seriously. Uh, this is often the case with people who are not raised as Buddhists in their family, in their childhood, and they take to it at a later time in life. And there's a period where often it is a little bit kind of uh, uh, forced. It's a, bit, it's a bit of an act. 
uh, you're rather self-conscious of being a meditator, mindfulness practitioner, or whatever. What Drum is trying to get at is the, the practice that we're talking about in this broader sense uh, has to do with it becoming very much one's own. And that's not just the meditation or the reading of the text or the circumambulating the stupa. But the whole of the path becomes simply something that you quite spontaneously uh, are engaged in. There's no longer a split. There's no longer a gap between you or your mind, as John called it, and the Dharma or the teaching or the practice. It's become seamless. It's become simply an expression of who and what you are as a human being. And at that point, and we see this in Zen quite a lot, we see it in early Buddhism, you can kind of let go of Buddhism. You can let go of these instructions and, and these uh, teachings and simply uh, live your life as spontaneously as you can, as naturally as you can, in a way that is somehow deeply informed uh, by the core values that animate your life. And I think for many of us, if we're not... Uh, brought up as, in a Buddhist culture. Um, we don't have to think of practice purely in Buddhist terms either. I think all of our traditions, be they the Christian tradition, be they our Western secular traditions, uh, philosophical traditions, all of them provide us with uh, insights, uh, values that we are somehow called upon to embody and to enact. And I think for many of us today, the notion of practice is going to, uh, to be far more than anything that can be narrowly contained within the label Buddhist. Maybe one day we'll let go of the word Buddhist and we'll find simply another way to live more sanely and more caringly um, on this earth uh, with not only other humans, but all other forms of life. And that, in the long term, would be what I would hope the, this movement uh, of meditation and mindfulness and Zen and these different things might one day help us arrive at. Thank you. So, thank you very much, Tony. Thank you, Stephen. And I don't have very much to add to what you both mentioned, which I thought was really thorough. But I would like just to say a little something, just to finish with briefly about uh, a little uh, email I got from Maggie and who said she greatly enjoyed the retreat. And she said she struggled to establish a practice in the past, meditated for a while, then swam by life. I was encouraged about what you said about the possibility of change. And then she's asking about something written about this somewhere, I'll send it through the email, about embracing a new possibility of establishing practice. So what I, that's what I'd like to talk a little about, a new possibility of establishing practice. And in a way, as kind of continuing from what Stephen said about what practice means. So, of course, the Eightfold Path, we can creatively engage with the practice in very many different ways in our life. And that's what I would call informal practice, creative wise action, 
creative wise listening, creative wise acting, speaking. But if we look a little bit at what we would call formal practice, and I think formal practice can be useful time to time as a means to stop, as a means to remind us of our value, as a means to cultivate focusing and inquiring, calmness and clearness. And I think we have to see that at times we have a very regular formal practice like we had during this retreat. But at times we can't because we are ill, because of different circumstances. So it seems to me that practice in daily life, formal practice in daily life, is something that goes through different stages and that we start again and again. So don't think that you have to have this kind of the same schedule of the time and the same timing of the time. Of course, some people, they can do that. But I would say most people can't. And so in a way, thinking of practice, kind of again with the beginner's mind, we start formal practice again and again and again. But I would say in daily life, the easiest way to practice is lying down when we go to bed at night, if we wake up in the middle of the night, and when we wake up in the morning. We can just be aware of the breath, just be aware of the body. I would not recommend the questioning or the listening in the evening when we try to sleep at night. I would recommend more the breath or just being aware of the body in the bed. But in the morning, questioning or listening to sound, I think can be very brightening. And so that's one very easy way to practice meditation if we want. Also, some people like to sit for a long period. Others might prefer to sit just 10 minutes once a day or 10 minutes several times a day. At the moment, actually, you have the people who are very busy because they are essential workers. And so for those who are really at the forefront of the crisis, I would say, can you still take a pause? Can you try to really take care of yourself? And I would say when there is a pause, like maybe a kind of a lunch pause or a breakfast pause or dinner pause, can you just really pause? And I know what you do is essential, but you need not to work nonstop eight hours or 12 hours or 10 hours. And if you can find little pauses in the day, like if you go to the bathroom, for example, can you use this as a pause? back to the breath, back to the question, whatever suits you. Also to remember, we also have the four postures. It's not just about sitting. We could also do lying down meditation, standing meditation. I mean, nowadays, queuing meditation, I don't know for you, but me, I often do queuing meditation. Uh, whenever I go and buy something or whatever, queuing meditation. So standing meditation. I think can be very useful at Corona time. Walking meditation, if we can walk outside, of course, that's really helpful. So really seeing you have the four posture of sitting, standing, lying down, and walking. That is very important. And then for those of us who actually our compassionate action is to stay at home as much as we can. 
how can we be with that huge pause? This is a big pause that we ask of us. So how can we use it as practicing for ourselves? How can we use it for practicing in a friendly kind way within our relationship? To me, this is kind of like an important thing. How can we be with family? How can we be with friends that will be more over the phone, over the internet? If we share the space with people, how can that become our practice? Sharing the space with people in a calm and bright way, in a kind and compassionate way. So each of us, in a way, can practice during this corona time. And so I hope that the retreat you've done with us will give you a little bit kind of like in way sustain you as with Maggie kind of reminding something and realizing, oh, I can do it. I stopped it, but I can start again. And actually we can start again and again and again. Every minute we can start again. So please keep well and please continue well. And of course, uh, there is again kind of uh, somebody was mentioning the, the dana. So please, uh, if you can give us any dana, this is really gratefully received and we'll share it with Tony. But if you can, I know some of you might not be able to, but the one who can, please support Gaia House because this is a kind of really different time for Gaia House. And so if anybody can support financially Gaia House, Gaia House would really gratefully receive that financial support. And thank you very much for having joined us. And I think we will stop here because I think uh, you had the time to speak together in the breakout group and I'm really happy with that. And then, of course, this is very special time. And uh, as some of the trustee of Gaia House we were speaking together because uh, we have had lots, we are having lots of meeting about Gaia House, actually the trustees, the teachers and everybody. And we think that this coronavirus time is an opportunity to rethink in some way how to use Gaia House for silent retreat where people can come physically, but we don't know when people will be able to come back physically. And how by having these retreats online, we actually can have a much wider outreach. So people who are ill at home, people who are confined to their home, people who don't have much money, people who it doesn't make sense to fly to England and also ecologically to have a little less flying could also be useful. So we're really thinking of not just stopping the Dharma online once the crisis is over and we can go back physically to Gaia House. But I think very likely what will happen will be more like a mixed model. What will be useful to do at Gaia House and what will be useful at the same time uh, online. And so, of course, this will develop over time and you will, of course, hear about it in due time. And to know that uh, Gaia House also has a Dharma hall. So it's, uh, several times during the week, you will have one teacher offering some meditation, offering some breakout group, offering a talk. Myself, I think I might be on again on the 11th, 
You also have the Body College, who is also offering talks online on Sunday and discussion on Thursday, and also has some uh, retreat. Actually, we had it was interesting at the same time at the sound retreat, we were there was also a Satipatthana retreat happening. So in a way, it's wonderful. You're very aware that there are lots of opportunity. And of course, for other people, they can join Sangha Live if that is more suitable for them. So please keep well. And thank you to Stephen. Thank you to Tony. Thank you to Mel, who organized all of this and helped the hosting and everything. Thank you to Tim, who also was very helpful uh, in that regard. And please keep well. And please go well and be well. And nowadays we say be safe and take care of others as well as taking care of yourself. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you, everybody. Bye bye.